0: This morning I'm going to be preaching on the inverted kingdom. Uh, We're going to take a, a big portion of scripture this morning, and as we go it might seem that we're going pretty fast and that we're jumping around from one theme to the other. But hopefully by the end you'll see that all the situations and all the parts of this chapter have a common thread. In God's kingdom, it's the cross before the crown. It's suffering before glory. It's the last before the first. It's serving over being served. It's faith over works. It's an inverted kingdom. It's upside down. All the attributes that we instinctively perceive is the way to glory. The way to honor, the way to privilege, the way to blessing, the way to happiness is flipped upside down. From what it's different than what we instinctively might imagine. And we see this over and over and over again in Mark chapter number 10. And so as we go, we'll see these themes play out and Lord willing, we'll see how it all ties together at the last. So, John, uh, Mark, rather Mark 10:13, it says, "And they brought young children to him that he should touch them." And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them, and bless them. So after Jesus was done teaching, um, the parents came and brought the little children to Jesus. And they desired that he would touch them, probably to to bless the little children. And the disciples saw these parents coming with the little children and rebuked them. (coughs) Stay away. Jesus has more important things to do than to be bothered by a bunch of little kids. Well, Jesus was very displeased about this. For starters, they had just gone over this very scenario. In Mark 9:33, it says, And he came to Capernaum and was being in the house, and he asked, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace, for they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down. And called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and a servant of all. And he took a child, and set them in the midst. And we had taken him in his arms. He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such child, children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth us. For followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth us not. And Jesus said, forbid him not. So the disciples just had received a lesson about this very thing. And Jesus took the little child and said, you need to be like this child. Um, You need to have this, um, not desire to be great, but have a childlike faith and humility. And then John said, well, we forbade this one. He said, forbid him not, and so forth. So the second time this has happened, Jesus is much displeased. He was displeased also that the disciples were standing as gatekeepers to the Lord Jesus. These children, in their view, were going to get in the way. Jesus had more important things to do than to be bothered with these children and their parents. And that was their mindset. And their mindset was totally wrong. Disciples are not to be the gatekeepers of Jesus, but they were to point people to Jesus. We are not to say, well, you can't come to Christ until you have shown yourself worthy and cleaned up your act. And uh, to, to start to show some some fruit before we can say that you can come to Jesus. That used to be a theory among some people that you had to clean up your life first. You had to to show yourself worthy before you could come to Christ. But if you wait until you uh, are worthy to come to Christ, you would never come to Christ at all, as the hymn goes, because none are worthy. And so Jesus rebukes this spirit that they are gatekeepers to the, the Messiah. No, he says, let the children come to me. Don't forbid them to come to me. The kingdom of heaven is like such. Those who come with a faith, a childlike faith. These children represent what the citizens of the kingdom look like. And if you don't receive the kingdom as a child, you won't enter in. Now that's upside down. Because in a kingdom... Who has who? Who's in the kingdom? Who has rights in the kingdom? Who can vote in our country? Little children can't vote in our country. You have to be of a certain age. And uh, who, so, who would enter into the kingdom? You wouldn't say children. You would say parents, adults, people with authority and power, property, maybe. So it's flipped upside down. Well, then we get into verse seventeen. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, All these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at the saying, And he went away grieved for he had great possessions. And it is And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So, this rich man comes up to Jesus. Interesting, the disciples don't forbid the rich man from coming to Jesus. They forbid the children and the parents of the children to come but not the rich man the rich man has easy access to jesus and he says good master what will i do that i can inherit eternal life so this man is not wanting healed he's not wanting jesus to do a miracle but he desires everlasting life the lord has a few problems with the question first he said why do you call me good Well, that's pretty strange, but it's not just the good part, but it's the good master. That's the problem, or good teacher. That's what he's saying. So he's coming up and saying, good teacher. And and Jesus says, why are you calling me good? Because there's none good but God. There's only one that's good, and that's God. So he's not denying his deity that he's not God, but he's asking this man why he would call a mere teacher good. Jesus is actually saying the opposite. He's saying, you're calling me a good teacher, but why are you doing that? There's only one that's good, and that is God. And what he's doing is showing him he has the wrong view of who Jesus is. Good Lord. That would be appropriate. But good teacher. So this man sees Jesus as as a good rabbi, a good teacher. And Jesus is pointing out that he's not seeing things clearly. He's not seeing things as they should be. So he sets that aside and he says, Okay, what do you need for eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. And Jesus goes down the, the bottom six of the Ten Commandments, except for coveting, and he replaces that with defraud not. And what's the man's response? He said, Well, master, teacher, I've done all that since I was a little boy. I was raised a Jew. I was raised knowing the commandments. My parents taught me the the Bible. They taught me the commandments. And from a little boy, I've been keeping all of those. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way and sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up that cross and follow me. So Jesus looked on this man and loved him. He looked on him with pity and compassion. So the man Christ Jesus saw this man. Here's a moral man. He's thinking about spiritual things, but he's all mixed up in the head. He's got everything wrong. He's proud. He's self-righteous. He might not be on the up and up with his money since Jesus mentioned defrauding. Maybe that's how he got rich. I don't know. But, but Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And so how does the Lord lovingly and kindly and compassionately deal with this man? Did he look at him and say, well, I love this man and I don't want to hurt his feelings? This man, I have pity on this man and I I don't want him to get mad at me. I don't want him to stomp off mad. So I'm just not going to say anything about his sin. And I'm I'm not going to treat him poorly and drop the hammer on him. But that's exactly what Jesus does, isn't it? How does Jesus love this man? He doesn't hate him, but he cuts off his hope. He's not compromising the truth. He's taking all the hope this man has in himself away. Because Jesus knows what will get him. He knows the sore spot, and that's he goes directly to that. He says, sell everything you have. Take all your fortune and all the money you get from selling all your possessions and then give it away. Live not for the things in this world, but live for your treasure in heaven. Then take up the cross and follow me. Give it all away. Well, the man heard this and he was very sad. He's sad, the Bible tells us, because he had a lot of money and he had a lot of stuff. And so Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, if you want eternal life, that's what you need to do. And as quick as the man came, he left. Well, Jesus' answer to the disciples clues us in on the problem. It's not that being poor is a requirement for eternal life. Because poor people hold on to what they have just as tight as rich people. Maybe even tighter. Poor people love their stuff just as much as rich people love theirs even though they might not have as much. They they hang hang on to it just as as tight. But what this has shown the man was what was most important to him in his life. Jesus showed him the bottom six commandments and he said, well, I don't, you know, I keep those. But then he got to thinking about the top four. That he hadn't loved God with all of his heart. You can't love God with all your heart and then be sorry if God tells you to sell everything and follow him. You can't have, you can't have uh, um, only one God if you've made your possessions an idol. And so this, this made him very sad. And so Jesus did this that he might expose this man's sin. This is an upside down kingdom that it's not who has the most will get the most. It's not the man who has the most money and the most power will have entrance into the kingdom. Think back in Mark 8, 34, where Jesus says, and he called the people unto him with his disciples, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his, his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And you'll notice in, starting in Mark chapter 8, there's these parallels all, th- all through it. So what, sort of what happens at the start happens at the end, between Mark 8 and the end of Mark 10. And so in Mark 8, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. If you lose your life, you'll save it. What w- what's a profit if you have the whole world and lose your own soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? And here's this rich man playing that out. Jesus says, to sell all you have and follow me, take up your cross, follow me. And we see, at least for this moment, what it looks like for a man to gain the world and to lose his soul. To get, what, would it call, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, however much money this guy has. Again, it's not that his riches are keeping him from heaven, or that if he was poor, but he. This is what he loves. This is what he holds up above and in place of God. So in verse twenty-three, Jesus explains it. Jesus looked around, back and saith to his disciples, "How hardly shall they that have riches enter in the kingdom of God." So Jesus is talking. As to like he's talking to like-minded men. Have you ever been around someone who's like-minded who who thinks like you do and then somebody comes up and says something bizarre and kind of way out there and then just keeps on walking and then you look at your friend and say, you know, it takes all kinds to make a world, I guess. You just, you, you don't even have to say anything because you both are thinking the same thing. You're both... On the same page. Well, that's how Jesus is here in verse 23. How hardly they that have riches will enter the kingdom of God. Talking to the disciples like they know, like they're like-minded, thinking along the same lines. But they're not on the same page at all because the disciples are astonished at his words. Their jaws dropped. They were not on the same page at all. They were amazed. But Jesus would say it's how hardly the rich could enter into the kingdom. How can you have a kingdom that will rule the world that's made up of poor people? Now, now explain that. You can't have a kingdom that's going to rule the world made up of poor people. That's a kingdom... But, you know, that's what you get with communism. Everybody's equally poor altogether. And the, the disciples, well, how can we have a kingdom with poor people? Not poor people in it, but they're thinking political kingdom. They're thinking kingdom on the earth. They're, they're astonished. Well, in verse 24, Jesus says, Children. Children. Now, What did Jesus say? You had to be like little children to enter into the kingdom. In verse 14, right? He says you have to be like little children. You have to receive this truth like little children. And then now Jesus turns to him and says, children. Listen to me, children. With humility, with faith, with trust like a little child. Listen to me. Now see, this should have clued the disciples in when he calls them children, because he just said that for such as is the kingdom of God. Little children, listen to me. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time getting a thread to go through the eye of a needle, let alone a camel go through the eye of a needle. Sometimes I'm fishing and I got a real small lure, I have to stop and take a breath and <laughs> calm down a second because I get kind of frustrated trying to get that fishing line through the eye of the fishing hook. And that's bigger than the eye of a needle. And Jesus said it's easier for a rich man or for a camel, a big old camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven. Now, if their their jaws drop the first time, now their jaws are on the floor. They just They're astonished without measure, it says. They can't believe what they're hearing. Well, who can be saved? If that's the case, who could be saved? If this guy can't be saved, if good moral men can't be saved, if these men whom God had blessed in the the nation of Judah, these covenant men, that God is blessed with money and possessions and inheritance and land, just like it says in the Old Covenant, if they aren't experiencing God's pleasure and abundance in the land flowing with milk and honey, well, then who can be saved? Think about all through the Old Testament in the Old Covenant, that once God promised that land flowing with milk and honey, the promises was, you keep my commandments, I'll bless you, and you'll have have blessing in the land. You'll have abundance. The crops will grow. It'll rain on your fields. um, You won't have any war. You won't have any problems. And this was the covenant of the people of Israel in the land. And that's what they're expecting. And here's a guy that looks like to be the fulfillment of that money. And he's following the law. And Jesus says, somebody like that can hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. If rich and powerful people aren't the key figures in the kingdom, then who's going to be saved at all? You see, there's a confusion here with the disciples. that They're not seeing it. They're not seeing these things clearly. In verse 27, Jesus looking upon them, saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. It's not possible with men. You don't buy your way into heaven. Even a good man's good works aren't good enough. Even if a man who'd been keeping the law since his youth hasn't kept the whole law, it's not required to be pretty good, but required to be perfect. There's a famous book that stresses lordship salvation, and it uses this text, and it says, you have to be willing to give it all up. And then it says you have to be willing because it equates salvation with faithfulness and faith and faithfulness. And it stresses that a believer has to have a a changed life so they'll say you have to be willing to give it all up. But the problem with that way of looking at it is you've lowered the bar from actually doing it to just to be willing. It wasn't Rich man, be willing to do all this. Jesus said, you need to do it. What is required? See, the guy wanted to to earn eternal life, and so Jesus says, well, what we'll do is we'll start out real low and we'll progressively move the bar up. No, Jesus said, this is the bar, and you have to do it. What is required is perfection. And what Jesus showed that man is he wasn't perfect. And so the disciples said, well, if he can't be saved, who could be saved? And Jesus said, no one can apart from God's grace. With God, all things are possible, even saving sinners. So, so far the disciples have forbade children to come to Jesus. Now they're shocked when the rich man left because of what Jesus said. And then they're astonished beyond measure at what Jesus said about it. They're confused about what makes up kingdom citizens. So in verse 28, Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, or verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren, sister or father or mother, wife or children, or lands for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So Peter's thinking about what the rich man wouldn't give up. And he says, Well, wait a second. We did do that, we left all. He wouldn't leave all that he had but we did we left our fishing business we left our families behind we're living hand to mouth we're following you wherever you tell us to go we did do that and Jesus said there isn't anyone who leaves family for Christ or possessions for Christ and for the gospel that won't receive a hundredfold in this life and more to come Following Christ may cost you your family, but you'll gain in the family of God. It may cost you wealth and job opportunities. It may cost you a dream house. It may cost you a dream job. It may cost you um, your, your closest family. But what you gain is greater than what you lose. And not only do you gain in this life, but in the world to come. So it's not that if you lose your house, you get a 100 houses in return. But what you gain by following Christ outweighs what you lose. (coughs) You might lose family. But what you gain in the family of God is sweeter and even more precious than than what you lose. And that's a fact, what Jesus says. Now, it's a blessing if your family follows Christ, but that's not the case for a great many people. And sometimes you lose even your closest family. But Jesus promised, and it's a fact, it's true, that what you gain by following Christ, is greater than what you lose. Now I did leave one part out on purpose, the persecution part. Because that's how the disciples were looking at it too. They, they, I think they probably just glossed that over. They weren't hearing it. But that's part of the Christian life. Not everybody's going to be tied to the stake or executed or put in prison. But all that live God, they shall suffer persecution of some sort. This is the inverted kingdom. It's upside down. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. If you lose your family, you'll gain more blessings. If you lose your house, if you're persecuted, if you're harmed, if you lose out in this life, you'll be the winner. If you're last, you become first. It's the children who enter, not the powerful. It's the poor who enter, not the rich. It's impossible to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Verse 32, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. The disciples were afraid. They're heading to Jerusalem, and they know that it's all going to come to a head. Three years they've been following Jesus. So Mark 1 to Mark 10 is three years. Three years this has been going on, and it's all going to come to a head. It's the boiling point. This is it. Now Mark doesn't say why they were afraid, but if they're expecting Jesus to come in glory and to take the throne, that's awesome. But it also means some, somebody's going to have to do something with the Romans. Because they're still in charge. You still got to do something with Herod. And they might have in their mind, they're about to go to war with the Roman Empire. They don't know what's going to happen. But they're almost to Jerusalem. But then Jesus tells them what's going to happen in great detail, predicting his betrayal His death sentence being turned over to the Romans, crucified, mocked, scourged, beaten, and then put to death. And he tells them he's going to rise from the dead. All those shalls there you see in that text. And it makes you, and and it shows you that the disciples were hearing it, but they weren't really hearing it because this would have stuck out, you would have thought, whenever he was spat upon turned over to the chief priests and to the romans and mocked and ridiculed and scourged and put to death they said oh yeah there's all those shalls but there was one more shall jesus said that he shall rise from the dead but still it's like the disciples and jesus are in two different realities they're in the same place they're walking down the same road they're having a conversation with him. they're seeing the same things Jesus is speaking. They're understanding the words, but what they see and what they hear and what they think are so far off. It's like they're in two different planets almost. They're missing the whole point. Jesus says A, B, and C, and the disciples are hearing one, two, and three. They're they're not on the same page at all. They just don't see it. We know this because So they're afraid, they're heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus says this, and and then John says, or James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, in verse 35, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant to us that we may sit on thy right hand and on the other on the left in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And they said, We can. And Jesus said unto him, You shall indeed drink of that cup that I drink of, and with that baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called unto him and saith unto him, Ye know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and the great ones exercise authority upon them. But so it shall not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." So James and John hear Jesus say, I'm about to suffer and die. And they say, well, can we sit on your right and left hand? It went in one ear and out the other. The Son of Man can't die because the Son of Man, and this is what it says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven and the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The disciples, I think, are living in Daniel 7 with kingdom and dominion And power and glory and thrones and the subjugation of the nations. They're living in Daniel 7. And everything that Jesus says, they interpret it through that. Jesus says, I'm about to die. That must be a metaphor. I'm about to suffer. That must be a metaphor or a parable. They're gonna arrest me, hand me over to the Romans, and condemn me to death. Well, that must be a metaphor, right? So every they, they just couldn't Grasp it. He's coming in glory. He will have dominion. He's going to sit in the throne. And when we get to Jerusalem, all this is going to happen, and I want to be on his right hand, and I want to be in his left hand. And Jesus said, you don't, even, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm about to go through? Well, sure we can. For thrones and glory, we'll, we'll do Whatever it takes. It's interesting that James and John are just as confident as the rich man was. And they, the rich man was confident in his works. James and John are confident in theirs. Well, of course we can do that. Because they couldn't see what it was. And they didn't realize the cup was a cup of Suffering and the baptism wasn't to go down under the water but to be immersed in suffering. They wanted to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus on thrones and glory. But in Mark, the only other time we read about a right hand and the left hand is in Mark chapter 15 verse 27 and it says with him they crucified two thieves, one on the right and the other on his left. That's what Jesus may have been talking about. You want to drink of that cup? You want to be baptized? Well, it's not for me to say who's to be on the right and on the left. They were thinking glory. They were thinking the crown. But in God's kingdom, it's the cross before the crown. It's suffering before glory. So when the others heard it, they got mad, and they were much displeased with James and John. And that's something else you see. At the beginning of this, who was much displeased? Well, Jesus was much displeased with the disciples because they were not letting the children come to him. They were being proud. They were being full of themselves. They were being gatekeepers to Christ. Now the disciples are much displeased with James and John. Why? Because they... because. They said, well, I see so much sin in you. No, they were displeased because they said, hey, we were going to ask that. Or, hey, we didn't think to ask that. I want to sit on this right hand. I want this power. They're mad at James and John now because they're afraid that they might get something that they don't get. They're still bickering and jealous about who's going to be the greatest. Going back to the previous chapter. Well, the Lord explained to him that the Gentiles, when they rule over people, they exercise lordship. They're the big guys, the guys in power who rule over the weaker people. Not so among Jesus' disciples. People don't don't go into politics because they, they just want to be unseen. People go into that because You can make a vast fortune in it, apparently, and you get to have power over people. That's what they want. And that's the way it's always been. That's the way the Gentiles do it, Jesus says. The Romans get power, then they rule over you. The strong will rule the weak. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be a servant. If you want to be the greatest of all, then you're going to have to be the servant of all. If you're going to be the greatest, you're not going to have everybody serve you. It's going to be upside down. You're going to be the servant of everyone else. That's the way of the kingdom because that's the way of the son of man. The son of man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He didn't come to subjugate the nations, but to save them. He didn't come to have an easy life. He came to give his life. He came not to take the weak and make them slaves, but he came to die for sinners and set them free. He didn't come to make great money and become great in wealth, but he came to be the ransom. He came to be the price to set men free. The glory of the Son of Man is not what he will take, but that he gave his own life. He was the ransom, the price paid to set one free. The disciples were living in Daniel 7 but they didn't realize before there's a Daniel 7 there has to be an Isaiah 53. And they weren't connecting those two. Isaiah 53 10 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when he shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The disciples were blind to what Jesus had come to do. They couldn't grasp that suffering and death and the cross went along with the Son of Man. They couldn't see the necessity of the cross, that the Son of Man came to suffer and bleed and die for sinners, to redeem us and to set us free and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. They had little faith. Freed from what? The ransom for what? Well, Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place as the Lamb of God. He died to set us free from the bondage of sin and deliver us from death. Now lastly, we see a miracle. And they came to Jericho and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highways, side begging And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried out the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of comfort. Rise, he calleth thee. And he casteth away his garment and rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. The disciples kept moving on after Jesus said this about being a ransom. And on the side of the road was a blind man begging for money. Bartimaeus had heard that Jesus was coming. He started crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David, the king. The king is coming. The king is coming. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It wasn't just a king, but it was one that could heal. So Jesus stops and calls him over, and people say, be of good cheer, because they were kind of aggravated that he was yelling. Just be quiet, blind man. Be quiet, poor man. Jesus, the king, is coming through. Jesus is coming through. Be quiet, and he wouldn't be quiet. And then finally Jesus calls him. He said, look, bring the man to me. He casts away his garments, and he comes. Now I'm closing with this story because this illustrates what has happened in really the last couple chapters if you go back all the way to chapter number 8 this whole section is, is framed by the healing of a bl- blind man remember first it was the blind man that Jesus comes along and he could see a little bit and he touched his eyes again and then he could see clearly and now it's framed with another blind man and all in between, you have the disciples hearing what Jesus says, but not perceiving it. Predictions, three predictions uh, that Jesus was going to suffer and die and they just didn't get it. And here we have a blind man on the side of the road. The disciples see a little. Men as walking as trees, but not yet clearly. Now here's a blind man, though. When he heard Jesus, he believed. If anybody can give him inside, side, it's him. The rich man saw Jesus as a good teacher, but the blind man, by faith, saw him as the son of David. The disciples saw Jesus as the Christ and the son of man in glory, but but no one as of yet has put all these things together that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of man. He is a good teacher in that he is the prophet and he is the son of God and he is the suffering servant. They were blind to see that. Well, the disciples desired power and money and were fighting over being great. But here Bartimaeus asked for mercy. Jesus asked him the same question that the disciples, that uh, James and John asked in 10.36. They said, um, Jesus, will you do what we should desire? And he said, what would you that I do for you? In verse 36, right? <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? You're asking for something. What do you want me to do? And they said, we want power. They come to blind Bartimaeus. He's crying out, son of, da- son of David. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, give me my sight. When Jesus called Bartimaeus, he took off his cloak. Now here's a poor man sitting on the side of the road begging for money. He didn't have anything to eat. He didn't have any money and no way to make any money. He sits there on the side of the road begging all day. And Jesus says, come. And what's he do? He takes off the only thing that he's got, his cloak and leaves it on the side of the road. The rich man couldn't part with his money. He walked away sad when Jesus said, follow me, come, follow me. And he turned around and left, sad. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus says, come, and he takes off even his cloak, and he comes to Jesus. Jesus healed him. He said, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Salvation is not becoming a big name. It's not earning favor with Jesus, but receiving Christ with childlike faith. It's not keeping the law, but knowing that we can't keep the law and needing saves from our sins and coming to Christ for salvation. It's not being first in the kingdom and having preeminence in the kingdom, but knowing we are last. It's not about money and power and glory in this world, but about being a servant. The disciples wanted glory, but Jesus, the Son of Man, said that he was a servant and he was a ransom. Can you see? Can you see the significance of the cross? That Jesus died as a substitute for sinners to pay the debt to divine justice for our sins, to expiate or to take away our sins, that we would have peace with God. The disciples were looking for kingdom and power and glory and blind to what was happening around them. They could see Daniel 7, but they couldn't see Isaiah 53. And like blind Bartimaeus, we must come to Jesus by faith and receive him as a little child. Each one of these stories fit together that this kingdom is upside down. It's not what the natural man perceives or even wants, but it is by faith that we receive eternal life through the work of Jesus Christ. To the Jews is a stumbling block, to the Greeks is foolishness, but to we who believe it is the power of God and a salvation. First the cross, then the crown. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we're children of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The crown, the glory. If so, we suffer with him. That we may be glorified together. First the cross, then the crown. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's inverted. It's upside down. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. Child of God, look.